Welcome to the Sheila Kama Extractive uh, Podcast. My guest today is Rodrigo Michaels. Rodrigo is a husband, father, son, brother, friend, aspiring musician, lawyer, executive, aspiring writer, and a concerned citizen with an interest in science, innovation, hard technology for technology for climate enthusiasts and solar technology entrepreneurs. Rodrigo is uh, a citizen of uh, Venezuela, otherwise a resident in the United Kingdom. Welcome to the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast, Rodrigo. I appreciate your speaking with me. Thank you very much for having me and for that mouthful of an introduction. Well, interestingly, you, you are some of the things I aspire to, so I'm still working on them. I wanted to be a musician myself. I wanted to be a lawyer. And I'm a sparring writer, so it's nice to see that uh, you don't have to be things. Sometimes uh, the aspiration and keeping it alive is important. Now let's uh, get started. What are some of the traditional ways of reducing the adverse effects of oil and gas and uh, its carbon footprint? Well, I think that, that the first thing to bear in mind is what exactly are or is the carbon footprint of uh, oil and gas? And there have been many efforts to try to uh, account for um, greenhouse gases by industries. And one source that I, that I saw actually put the overall effect of oil and gas as having a direct responsibility for 42% of greenhouse uh, gas emissions uh, in the planet. That's wow. quite a lot. From that 42%, there is only a 8% that it's what's called scope one emissions, which are the direct emissions uh, associated with the industry itself. So for, for that 8% would account for both upstream, midstream, and downstream uh, emissions. Then you would have a, another 1%, which would be the indirect emissions. And then the rest, which is a 32%, which is quite a lot, it's actually all of the emissions connected with the value change, with the value chain of the oil and gas sector. So that would go as far as, um, uh, of course, that, that's what's called scope three, and that's uh, what uh, every car emits when it runs from place A to place B and, and it's not an electric vehicle. So combustion engine vehicles burning um, petrol to as transport, they would make these scope three emissions and things like that. So, but this forty-two percent is is an enormous uh, footprint uh, for the greenhouse gases. And then, so what the oil and gas industry can do itself? Well, basically they can do quite a lot in order to reduce these emissions. Um, 
if you divide their activities by upstream, which is basically the extraction of oil, uh, you would figure that that in itself accounts for two thirds of that 8%, which is enormous. And many of it is related to what's called fugitive emissions of methane or things connected to gas flaring and things like that. Please stop me if you if you want to have more clarity about any of these uh, uh, individual elements. So the, the gas flaring in itself, for example, is something that that many of us have seen when we uh, pass near an oil and gas uh, operation, where you have these chimneys that are somehow alight and then they're burning something. So usually that will be a flaring of some sort. Hmm. So, uh, yeah, it's interesting because what, what you're saying is that it's, it's important when we talk about uh, carbon footprint to understand the various uh, component parts in the petroleum value chain because to the extent that um, some of the emissions accrue to the activities of oil and gas companies, what you're saying is that you know that that's only really up to midstream, and then the rest is what the consumer does. Because I think people forget that uh, we too are part of that carbon footprint based on the choices we make about uh, whether to own a car or not, how often to use it, and what other apparatus. And, and I think understanding that totality is important but uh, let me turn the question around is there anything that can be described as environmentally friendly aspects of fossil fuels well i, I think that fossil fuels one of the reasons why we have become so addicted to them is that they are a very practical way to store energy. And when you see how difficult it's been for alternative and renewable uh, sources of energy to compete against uh, this, it's because of how practical it is. Uh, uh, one knows that um, oil products are flammable. That said, they can normally be transported uh, through long distances with uh, taking uh, obviously uh, security precautions without there being an explosion. And, and, and we see uh, oil and gas actually being used uh, in society all the time in cities, in, in industries, all the time without there being accidents. So, it's very practical in its use. It's very easy to transport. It's very easy to store. Uh, and, and that's why uh, it's become so prevalent. Hmm. So, uh, Just to give you an example of how practical oil is, or imagine jet fuel. If you had a tank of jet fuel in an airplane, you'd be able to fly from... Um, London to, to New York and, and probably farther without having to recharge your tank. But imagine if you had to 
power all of these engines using coal. You would require probably a load of several planes just to have enough coal to power the engines for that uh, same distance. So uh, one of the things that, that that's difficult to, to, to deal with uh, oil and gas is precisely how practical it is. Yeah, that is very interesting. I never thought of it because I, I live in Southern Africa and I'm, I often travel to Europe, which is on average 11 hours. Uh, and we don't think about it, that we have to stop and, and refuel. That's 11 hours flying at something in the order of 400 kilometers uh, at ground speed. And you don't have to stop and, and refuel. And, and so what you're saying is, in some way, uh, those qualities endear us to uh, oil because of its uh, efficiency, especially when we think of weight relative to exactly. the exactly. storage of energy and our ability to, but also presumably to transport it uh, yes. using pipelines, uh, uh, you know, from place to place, you it it, it is more efficient uh, in some respect than than coal. So, I mean, in your experience, is there ever a condition under which petroleum companies might say this oil field is very lucrative? However, for environmental reasons, we we just cannot extract it because uh, the potential hazards environmentally far away the economic value? I, I think that that's possible. I think that at the moment, there are many uh, oil companies that are rebalancing their portfolio, taking into account uh, aspects such as the emissions that might be uh, connected with that particular uh, reservoir. So for example, um, very deep uh, reservoirs, like ultra deep, like um, the one that, that BP uh, um, uh, was producing in the Gulf of Mexico, uh, those have higher uh, greenhouse gas emissions associated with them just because of a the possibility of, of there being um, fugitive emissions and, and, and leaks. And, and so these type of projects might be put further down the queue line and might never see the light of day, depending on how uh, over time um, the, the oil and gas industry evolves, because they, they would try the have less emissions attached to them. Hmm. So you you mentioned earlier the this notion of uh, gas flaring, which to your point is one of the contributors to uh, high levels of uh, scope one emissions in oil uh, projects. I don't understand. Everybody knows that, uh, and yet companies continue to flare, and there doesn't seem to be a groundswell of laws or, or other interventions to encourage or stop oil companies from this process. What's the problem? Is it really just the economics, or is there some genuine 
technological problem that does not, uh, under the circumstances, make gas flaring one of the obvious ways of reducing carbon emissions? Yeah, I, I think that many companies are taking not only a responsible approach towards that problem, but also an economic approach. Many are figuring out that tackling uh, these problems can actually improve productivity of their fields. So for example, if you uh, invest in gas gathering facilities, you might be able to use that gas to replace gas oil that you might typically use for uh, electricity generation for your own activities. And, and that would not only mean less emissions, but would also reduce the cost. So you might make your facilities more um, better performing just by dealing with situations like flaring. I think that, that part of the problem is that it's probably historical. If you go back to a period in time where there was not much awareness about these things, first, oil was a much more important resource then than gas, because gas was a lot trickier. And then again, I come to the practical element of it, was a lot trickier to handle. So imagine that you had a remote operation somewhere where you just had to gather barrels to, and then put them in a tanker and, and, and ship them to another country. You couldn't do that easily with gas uh, because it was years later that we came up with the technologies necessary to uh, basically gather this gas and also uh, decrease its temperature so that we just turn it into a liquid and then export it through a, a very uh, elaborate and, and technologically evolved tankers and then um, plug them into, into, into gas converting facilities in the various ports where they're gonna be used. Basically those things started happening relatively not that long ago. And then you see uh, at the moment issues with, with, with energy in, 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 in Europe, for example, where, where uh, most of the gas that a country as big as energy, one of the biggest industrialized countries, uh, as Germany, sorry, they, they relied on, on gas imported through gas pipeline from Russia, and they didn't have enough uh, facilities to import LNG which is something that they are building. LNG is liquefied natural gas. So what I mean with that is liquefied this gas was not something obvious. So coming back, you suddenly were producing oil and when you produce oil, some associated gas would come with it, but you wouldn't have what to, you do, wouldn't know what to do with it. So at first you burn it. Then over time when people realize, okay, well, this is uh, an important resource. Let's gather it and let's figure out ways of using it. Uh, and then some other solutions would evolve, such as perhaps gathering all this gas and uh, having enough volumes to power um, um, electricity generation plants, whether it is for, for a city or whether it is for a region 
or whether it is for a particular uh, industrial process. Mm. So, uh, but, but then the thing also is how remote are uh, these oil uh, produ producing facilities. If you have various wells that are scattered uh, and where it's hard to gather all these gas, then you would have the tendency to, or, 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 it, or, or it was a, a, an admitted a practice just to flare it because otherwise you would not be able to continue producing oil um, economically. Hmm. These things have changed, however, and there are many operators now that can actually use this gas to replace it, as I said, for uh, electricity generation or combine them also with ways that are clever to have electricity in remote uh, facilities. So for example, you can combine them with solar uh, uh, fields, but as you know, solar uh, energy would only work during the day. And then if you gather the gas during the day, you can use it at night and keep uh, having electricity for uh, your oil and gas activities, for example. Mm. So, but, but there are a lot of examples. Then there are things like fugitive emissions. And these fugitive emissions are leaks coming out of the various uh, oil facilities that are out there. But then companies have figured that they can deal with those by having better bulbs or putting seals and, and, and basically changing some of the equipment that makes actually the whole activity safer, safer and more reliable and, and, and then uh, they preserve the, this resource. Hmm. So, you know, uh, oil companies and the oil industry as a whole has been under pressure from activists uh, because of, uh, you know, the impact of fossil fuels on the environment. And, and we are seeing potentially a decline in the size of the industry over time. I wonder whether you think, in many ways, the there was an error on the part of oil companies not educating the public on the relationship between uh, the carbon footprint throughout the life cycle of petroleum projects and our own behavior, such that there is an understanding that if we want to save the world, it's not just about uh, asking oil companies to reduce uh, or stop production is also about changing the way we live. You know, shouldn't oil companies have been more proactive in educating the public? Would that have perhaps helped the tension between the industry and uh, activists? Yeah, I, I think, I wouldn't know what the answer uh, of that would be. I, I believe that oil companies might have done things that are inappropriate and some other things that, that are actually not necessarily their responsibility. What I mean with inappropriate is that when, a, when you see that there have been a class actions filed in the US against corporate giants like ExxonMobil 
for having a, a omitted information or not disclose what they really knew about climate change uh, many years ago. Uh, so these things obviously show that there is some uh, intent there that that, it, that has to be uh, punished if if that's what the what 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 the judges uh, find in, in in their decision. Mm. But then on the other hand, you need to bear in, in mind that many of these uh, companies, their activities are very complicated. They not only are employers; they work in many different countries uh, in the world at the same time. They have relationships with many different governments at the same time. So they try to comply with the laws and regulations of each of the jurisdictions in which they uh, operate. But each of these laws and regulations are different. And, and there are some common factors. And then obviously a problem now like, like a, a greenhouse gases is something that because of climate change, we still feel very, um, every citizen in the world feels that there has to be a way in which these companies must answer. But then what you mentioned earlier, which is, for example, the emissions associated with the use of certain uh, vehicles. If you use a, a combustion engine vehicle, or if you travel by plane, obviously you would you would be responsible of part of those emissions. But then sometimes you just do not have a real alternative because even if you use an electric vehicle, but then you find out that the electricity that you use for that ele electric vehicle comes from um, a coal-fired thermal plant, then uh, the effect is somewhat similar. So it, it, it all has to be renewable and all of these things take time to materialize. But more to the point about about oil companies, I believe that they they have their share of responsibility and they need to do things, but they are just one cog in a very complicated um, setup. And then they would always defend themselves saying, yeah, but we also provide a, a public service because thanks to the energy that we produce, then um, whole societies are able to not only function, but at the same time, uh, manufacture goods and uh, produce food and do so, so many of these things. So I believe that, that we, that for there to be a proper dialogue, um, one doesn't need to stigmatize uh, oil companies. However, uh, they, they really need to understand that fossil fuel is a big part of a problem and uh, therefore they need to do their bit to reduce emissions. I think that because of all of this process of getting rid of fossil fuel is something that's gonna be very, very long, uh, one has to do it in a way in which citizens know and feel that, that companies are not really sleeping into a business as usual type of mode. And they're, they're gonna say that they're gonna uh, transition into cleaner fuels, where, whereas in reality, they're gonna keep uh, producing at the same rate and it's gonna be 
a mockery simply because there is no international framework that obligates each of these companies to um, reduce emission at a, at a faster rate. Hmm. Uh, we have about five minutes, so I'm gonna, I have maybe three or so questions, and so I'm going to ask you to be somewhat brief. First, what do we mean by carbon capture and carbon storage, and how uh, helpful is it to reducing the impacts of uh, fossil fuels in the environment? Yeah, well, carbon capture uh, and storage is uh, to basically capture the carbon that is uh, emitted by the extraction of oil, or if you use it midstream and downstream by an industrial process where a CO2 or a greenhouse gas is emitted, so you capture it. And then the idea is to store it and one way to, to visualize this is to store it in underground caves uh, that are just um, sealed so that you can store that gas in these underground caves and then they would not come out. Uh, so th th that's a general idea. However, carbon capture and storage has taken a very long time to really develop. Uh, and at the same time, at present, it's not necessarily what's considered to be the way in which uh, the industry will necessarily evolve. I think that at present, there are like 20 large carbon capture and storage uh, facilities being uh, used in, in, in many areas of the world. And probably for that to have a meaningful imp impact, it would have to be multiplied by several, uh, I don't know by by a hundred perhaps. So so it, I I I I wouldn't know whether that's something that that would um, that we would see. Probably in countries such as Saudi Arabia, they would because they, they might manage to integrate that in all of their uh, oil activities in a way in which other countries or other oil companies might not be able to do it. Uh, but but again, that's a bit of a speculation. However, there are more things that can be done to reduce the carbon footprint. Uh, and, and that's what I alluded to when I mentioned dealing with flaring and fugitive emissions. Absolutely. So, um, you know, we, um, many uh, petroleum projects are offshore. Um, I always wondered when we build these oil rigs uh, offshore, you know, how when we decommission them, do, do we then ensure the any disturbance on the marine environment is mitigated after all those years of uh, being at sea? Yeah, you know, that's a very tricky question because I remember in the North Sea, there was this debate well, there wasn't really no debate because the law said that once the platform has to be decommissioned, basically that means that it just has to be uninstalled and disposed of elsewhere. It, 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 but, but the thing is that over many years of operation, there's gonna be marine life that would uh, thrive and grow uh, in 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 the columns of these platforms, 
So when you when you have to dispose of the platforms, uh, you are likely gonna be destroying uh, some habitat or dispersing it in some way. So it, 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 it's an impact. But then you also have the other difficult choice of, okay, what do we do with this? We just leave it there uh, to rot over time. And um, so it, I don't think that there is an easy answer to these things. And, and, and that just comes to the fact that whatever we do in our human activities have a, an actual impact in, in the environment. Um, and that's where we're, we're overall, when we see how uh, biodiversity has been decreasing over the years, it's a big uh, question mark as to how is it that we can really do things without having such a big impact or the fact that we are so anthropocentric means that inevitably we'll end up um, the humans will eliminate uh, indirectly uh, so many species. Hmm. So it, it's a very tricky question. Sure. So here's my final question. I mean, we know about uh, the penalties, enormous penalties financially that have been imposed on oil companies whenever they transgress and there's apparent negligence leading to significant oil spills, human uh, loss, and, uh, you know, damage to the environment. And, and the one that in recent years has been astronomical is BP's debacle in the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, I, I, some estimate that to date, uh, there was about 63 billion in, in payments. I mean, you have to wonder, if a company can afford to pay that and is still liquid, is this really the right way? Is, is it a deterrent? What is it telling us that a company can be fined that much money and still be profitable and still continue to function? Is that a, a deterrent or what? Yeah, I, I think that there has never occurred such a tragedy like like what happened to BP in the Gulf of Mexico before in the oil industry. Uh, and, and that happened in part because it was a very, very challenging uh, ultra deep uh, well with, with, with technical challenges that even at the time uh, or, or after the fact, it, it's, uh, they, they realized that there were many things that they didn't know that wouldn't stop working in the event of, of, of an accident because it's a matter of many bulbs not working. And I don't want to oversimplify a very uh, complicated uh, situation. I think that, that BP um, paid that tremendous fine and, and it almost, they, they could have disappeared from the map, but somehow, uh, the resilience that, that, that they showed and, and, and probably the quality of their portfolio was such that they were able to meet such a, a steep um, financial uh, cost and still be operating now and now be extremely profitable and probably being subject to to, to pay tax. <laughs> 
yeah, it, 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 it's incredible. It, it's actually it's a, it is incredible. Yeah, but but I think it, what it shows is that the the oil and gas sector generates a astronomic amounts of revenues, and that's why they are in a position where they can be very very uh, active in figuring out ways to reduce their emissions. And you see that many Western oil and gas companies are seeking to transition their business models to having a, some that would involve a higher or, or bigger uses for clean energy. Whether it's gonna be a, a, in relation to a, a future hydrogen a, industry, which hydrogen would have the advantage of not being a greenhouse gas. Uh, so many of them have hopes in that regard. Uh, th there are others that are also uh, investing heavily in, in, in wind, such as you see in Norway, Equinor, and then at the same time, you have the, the, the oil company in Denmark that transitioned from being um, an oil and gas company into a, a, a wind company. Uh, you have other companies like Total from France that where the solar also plays a big part and gas and, and other uh, cleaner ways of... of, of uh... So you see that there are changes happening there. Well, Rodrigo, that was wonderful. Thank you very much for joining the Shilakam Extractive Podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. <laughs>